So, Lee, I know that there is really a biodiversity of types of people involved in this coalition, and coalition work is tricky. Tell us a little bit more about the different players and sort of how um, that works in, in Chicago. I think it probably works the same in Chicago as it will most places, and that is when you have a coalition, you're able to get people who come from different backgrounds and have different concerns and talents who may not prioritize everything exactly the same, but you can at least get them working together in a moment in time so that they generally supporting each other. So I'll give you an example. Um, there are a number of people who work in the gun violence uh, issue because they personally have lost family members to gun violence. And I've met a number of these people and some have become friends. And they may spend a year or two years or 20 years working to reduce the violence because they don't want anyone else to go through what they've gone through. I've got a friend, uh, Jennifer, whose sister was shot to death while she was pregnant, and the husband was also shot by someone who, so far as we can tell from the trial, it was just something he wanted to do as a thrill. So he killed three human beings. He's in jail right now. Well, Jennifer has spent the last 20 years or so working to see that this sort of tragedy doesn't visit anyone else's family. I've met people who have had, they've lost brothers, husbands, wives, every degree of relationship you can imagine, and some of these people get involved in the movement. Now, of course, most don't, and you can't expect them to, and to tell you the truth, it's one of the reasons I'm involved in this issue is because I don't think it's fair for those of us who have not suffered to expect those who have suffered the loss to have to take the additional step and lead the struggle. I think we all owe it to ourselves and to society, let alone to those people who have become victims. And we generally refer to the survivors as the victims, not just the person who was shot. I think we all owe it to ourselves and to society to pick up and become involved where we can. So you have people who have their direct experience, and then you have people like you who say, I have to be an ally. I have to step up precisely because I've not been individually touched. But there's a societal reason. Tell me a little bit more about kind of with all the issues and all the, the problems, uh, you know, in our communities, why did, why did you and why do the people you work with feel guns were, were the thing you wanted to focus on? It's probably different for each person. For me, it's very much an emotional issue. Having met just when I having met just a handful of these people, it was it was easy to say, okay, here's where I want to put my efforts. Now I've worked on other issues over a period of time, and I continue to. And because we do work in coalitions, I get drawn into other things, and I draw those people into our things. And that's part of the beauty of it. Is is my main priority at the moment is working against violence. But if some friend of mine is also working on an immigration issue or working on student loan uh, debt issues or working on uh, marriage equality issues. We get to know each other. We all respect the process of working at the grassroots level, the process of being involved politically. So if I need a few more people to show up an event, there's a fair chance that some of these people will reciprocate because they know I'm going to reciprocate. So it all works together. Now, interestingly enough, We've got people, for instance, in the law enforcement community who are involved in this effort. The chief of police in Chicago right now has been very, very supportive. Now, where is he coming from? He's got lots of concerns. He's got public policy concerns. He's got concerns for the safety of his officers who he doesn't want to have, that they should have to face any more guns when they're on the street or responding to a domestic situation. 
he and I probably wouldn't agree on an awful lot of other political issues, but on this one we work together. We've got faith communities where we've worked with every faith that I can imagine, and they all obviously have different uh, ways of looking at these things, but at some level they find ways to put their faith into action on the issue. So that, to me, is the beauty of coalition work, is we don't all have to agree on everything if we can find some little piece of it where we can work together. So in your mind, when you say it kind of touches other issues, besides just sort of the solidarity of showing up on other people's things, are there some core systems in the society that you think are underpinning gun violence? Maybe you could talk about that. Absolutely. The number one type of gun violence we have across this country is suicide. More than 50% of all people who are killed by guns kill themselves with guns. And this happens not in necessarily uh, or predominantly in inner city ghettos where the drive-by shootings might be expected. It happens in suburbs. One took place a few blocks from where I live in a nice middle-class suburb of Chicago uh, a couple of years ago. It happens in farming communities. It happens virtually anywhere where people might have a gun handy at a moment when they're feeling so dejected, uh, so alone, so helpless, that they pick up the gun and they kill themselves, whereas if they didn't have the gun so handy, maybe they would have made a phone call. Maybe they would have taken a nap. Maybe they would have done a lot of other things, but you only get one chance. The, the sad, sad thing about it is if you try and kill yourself with a gun, you're usually going to succeed. It really only takes one impulsive moment. If you try and kill yourself any other way, you're probably going to fail, statistically speaking. So when we talk about guns, we're talking about everyone in every part of society all across the country, people having guns that they might use to kill themselves. Now, the other part of it is those things that do take place in particular communities, which tend to be minority communities, and more importantly, which tend to be um, economically disadvantaged communities, where you have certain social structures which might lead some people, certainly not everyone, to be involved in gang activity so that they'll feel they have some control of their lives, where it may lead some people, just as the suicides, to feel hopeless and they feel like, okay, I'm going to get power where I can. So when you say, what is it that unites all of us? What unites all of this is feelings that people have as human beings, which are the same no matter where people are, and the social structures that say we are going to have parts of our cities, whether it's in Chicago or Oakland or San Francisco or New York or Atlanta, we're going to have parts of our cities where we're going to put people who are going to live in circumstances where we know that they will be more subject to violence than people who live elsewhere. And there's racism involved, and there's classism, and there's all sorts of other things. So what's interesting is when we talk about some of the root causes and the pressure cooker and, and certain conditions, um, you, you almost, I'll, I'll be devil's advocate here, you're almost saying that's what is the problem and people who support um, gun possession would say it's not the guns, it's these underlying problems. So how do you, how do you if someone comes right back and says, <coughs> Let me do this again. So if someone says, okay, I agree with you. There are some root causes. There's some systemic problems. Let's tackle that. The problem is not guns. It's 
the reason people use guns. How do you come back at that? I usually ask them what efforts they're making to tackle these root causes, and I very seldom get an answer that tells me these are people who are making any effort to do anything than put more guns into the people, the hands of more people. So yes, we should look at root causes, but guns are one of the root causes. Like I said about suicide, if the guns weren't there, people would not be killing themselves quite as much. If the guns weren't there, there wouldn't be drive-by shootings. You don't have a whole lot of drive-by knifings or drive-by assaults except for with guns because it's an impersonal weapon. It can be used at a distance. It's very lethal. It's very easily obtained. It's very easily disposed of and hard to trace and all these other things going on. So there are root causes, but without the guns, you wouldn't have the violence and the lethal violence. It all has to be addressed. And similarly, some people would say if you outlaw guns, only outlaws will have guns. You can make up all kinds of bumper stickers if you want. I don't think that's the way we would want to really do our analysis of public policy, and I don't think that's the way we want to relate to each other as human beings. If you had a bumper sticker that said, love thy neighbor, that's the sticker I'd rather see on people's cars. But let's say it's law enforcement that's saying, look, we, we're being outgunned. We need more and more powerful weapons. The kind of militarization of the police in response, ostensibly, to the firepower or the gun power um, in the people they sometimes face. It seems to be this escalation, but what, but maybe you can speak to that. It is an escalation. It wasn't so many years ago that police in in the United States didn't carry guns. Not so long ago. It isn't so long ago that police in other parts of the world didn't carry guns. But when they perceive that the other person might have a gun, they want a gun. And if they think the other person might have a more powerful gun, they want a more powerful gun. And so you're seeing now SWAT teams in the most harmless communities because they feel like they have to be ready to face the most extreme terrorist threat that anyone can imagine. It's nonsense, but someone's making money selling them these fancy equipped vans and the television surveillance and the bulletproof armor and shields and the guns and the rest of it. So the answer can't really be for the police to say, take away the other guy's guns first. The answer really has to be, we have to reduce the level of violence and lethality at all sides. And that includes the police side because when people in certain communities see the police, they don't necessarily think that the police are their friends or that the police are there to protect them. You know, we have to address that. So there are people who also say, you know, we're not going to get rid of all guns, but let's try to get rid of the military-style guns, the automatic um, multiple magazine. Um, where do you stand on those sort of... Um, in a way, it can be strategically incrementalism, or it can just be, here's the real problem, let's tackle that and not try to fix the whole thing. Um, where do you come down in kind of the uh, different levels of, of reform that you want? Where I'm working right now is to repeal the Second Amendment to the United States Constitution. And that's probably looked at some people as an extreme position, but I think it's necessary because what has happened is we have it in our minds that having a gun is a right, and it is, because the United States Constitution says the right to bear arms. Now, until a couple of years ago, everyone understood that that meant if you're in the militia, which is essentially the precursor of the uh, National Guard, then the state or the government has a right to have a militia in order to, well, 
The history goes way back to the founding of our country. It's totally irrelevant today. But the Supreme Court doesn't get it. The Supreme Court, for whatever reasons, probably ideological, political, whatever it is, decided in 2008 that people have an individual right to have guns. Well, I can say that the Supreme Court's wrong, but they're supreme and I'm just some guy. So the answer really has to be either we get a Supreme Court that is going to be honest about what the Second Amendment means and reverse that decision, or else we have to get rid of the Second Amendment. And I think we have to get rid of the Second Amendment because it's going to take forever to do it the other way, and I don't know if we will. And besides, working to repeal the Second Amendment is a righteous goal which can mobilize people, and it can get us thinking about what is it we really want. If I say to the average person on the street, do you think that everyone should have a gun no matter where they go? Most people are going to look at me like I'm crazy because, of course, people don't believe that. If I phrase the question in terms of do you think people have a right under the Constitution to bear arms, most people are going to think, well, yeah, I guess they do. So the question is, what do we really want? What kind of society do we want? And if we want less violence and less gun violence, I think we ought to be honest about it and say, you know, the Second Amendment is outmoded, and we might as well get rid of it. We have amended our Constitution 27 times. The Constitution says in the Constitution itself that it can be amended. The Founding Fathers understood that what they were writing was not a perfect document and that it should be responsive to the needs of the times. And that's why we have a mechanism for amending it. So I say, let's amend it. Let's get to the point where we say you don't have a right to have guns. Then we can start talking about, do we want people to have assault weapons? Do we want people to have rifles that'll shoot 100 rounds? Do we want people to have bullets that will pierce armor? Do we want people to have bullets that are designed to explode within a person's body so that they can't be surgically removed or that the person won't even survive to the point where they get to a surgeon? Do we want concealable weapons that are so small anyone can carry them anywhere? All of these questions, which we can't really address now because we think people have a right to these things, if we get rid of the right, then we can say, what do we want? And then we can have a country that we want. Break it down. How does that happen? 27 times there's been amendments. But if you're going to aim high, I want to know what your recipe is for, for working this, uh, getting rid of the Second Amendment. The first thing to think about is, do we really think that people of color should be able to vote in the United States? Because if you think that they should, then you have to agree that sometimes you have to amend the Constitution. Because if we hadn't amended the Constitution, people of color would still not be able to vote in the United States. I'd say, ask yourself, do you think women should be able to vote in the United States? Because if you think women should have that right, then you have to admit that sometimes it's appropriate to amend the Constitution. And that's where I want to start, is get people thinking, should we ever amend the Constitution? And are those two examples I gave, do those get through to you enough? And then ask yourself, should people be living in fear all the time, no matter where they go, and particularly certain people who live in certain neighborhoods, should they live in fear of guns? And if your answer is no, we shouldn't all have to be afraid of each other all the time, then I think we're in the same category of that's why we have to amend the Constitution. So your goal to um, amend the Constitution, get rid of the Second Amendment, that's certainly, like you say, not the position you lead with because if you're looking at history, as you just did, all of those amendments came from a change in consciousness and a certain readiness and a, 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 a you know, grassroots um, and some legal challenges. 
you know, so I, that's what I want to understand is sort of how do you build the conditions or preconditions to then amend something as um, polarizing as the Second Amendment? Well, it, it's hard to know when the movement for women's votes started, really, but there's probably a 60-year period that people were working on that. It's hard to know exactly when the movement for uh, to end slavery started, but we know that that took place over many, many decades. And it's one of those chicken and egg things. It didn't just all of a sudden happen because people decided to change things. In part, it happened because people started talking about it, and they held a convention where they got a lot of women together and activists, and they started talking about it. Or if you look at prohibition of alcohol, that took many, many decades. Now, reversing that didn't take so long. People saw pretty quickly that there was a reason that that wasn't going to work. But how do you start? You start the way we start in any movement. You start talking about it. You start by having the courage to say, I believe this. I'm not going to just go for the incremental change. Incremental change is good, and I support people who are working on all sorts of the restrictions that you mentioned about guns. My role at this point is to say there are people out there who need to hear the message at the far end of the debate that's where we start. We start talking. We start being honest. We start saying we're not going to let the National Rifle Association, which is the trade group for the people who are making millions of dollars selling guns, we're not going to let them define for us what is the debate. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the National Rifle Association and it being a trade group because I want to kind of ask you, you know, who benefits? We, we know about victims of gun violence, and we know some of the arguments of people that support um you know, just freewheeling gun uh, uh, purchasing, et cetera. But, but on a larger superstructure level, talk to me about the, the NRA. Talk to me about who, you know, follow the money. Who, who really benefits from this? You can look at it at the very small level of who's making the millions of dollars selling the guns that are on the streets of America. And you can find who those companies are, and they're sort of scattered all over. It's a peculiar industry. It's not consolidated the way some industries are yet. And there aren't any big barriers to entry because there are so few regulations that it's pretty easy to start manufacturing guns. But that's only the part of it. As big a problem it is, the other piece of it is the whole military uh, or military-industrial, or however you want to call it, complex, which depends for its existence upon our acceptance of violence as a way of resolving disputes and establishing power. So it's not just the people who are selling the concealable guns or the assault weapons to the people in America. It's all those other folks who soak up all the sorts of money uh, and have so much power over our country who want to be able to project American influence by force all around the world. They are very much interested because if the, if the people in America decided we reject the idea of violence domestically, I think we'd be going a long way towards rejecting violence as an instrument of political power across the world.